What does it take to be the best in the world at what you do? So good, in fact, that you become the most famous Olympic gold medalist in history in your sport. Buckle on up as you are about to hear from this legendary Olympic champion. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on The Motivation Show is the most recognized male figure skating star in the world. He has been inducted into the United States Olympic Hall of Fame and is a privileged member of the World Figure Skating Hall of Fame. In the 1984 Sarajevo Olympics, he mesmerized the world with his gold medal winning performance. He continues to share his love and enthusiasm for the sport as a TV analyst and commentator, performer, producer, and now New York Times bestselling author of Finish First, Winning Changes Everything. He is a cancer and pituitary brain tumor survivor. So life has not always been a bed of roses <laughs> and we are going to learn how he has overcome these mind boggling challenges. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Scott Hamilton. Well, thanks for having me. Let's motivate people. <laughs> well, Scott, if anybody could motivate anybody, I have a feeling that you can, because you don't fit the prototypical sort of thought of what maybe an Olympian champion really <laughs> no, is, right? Definitely not. No, no, <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah, I can agree with you there. So I want to first yeah. thank you for being that shiny example that actually nice guys can indeed finish first. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank well, you. Yeah. What was life like for Scott Hamilton growing up in your earlier years? Well, I mean, it, it was unique. Um, I was adopted at six weeks of age. I was kind of an oops by a single mother that I'm sure had other options. So I'm just really grateful to breathe in, breathe out. And, and um, you know, the parents that adopted me were spectacular and incredible. And, and so, you know, growing up the first adopted child in a household, you know, it's, just, it's in my, my older sister who was born of my parents was like, how long is he going to be here? <laughs> you know, that type of thing. <laughs> But, you know, when, when you have a birth child, you know, they usually come with expectations. Like if you're in athletics, you expect them to be, you know, have athleticism. If you're in academia, you expect them to get into, you know, school and, you know, the, the pursuit of wisdom. But when you're an adopted child, you're sort of like, you know, let's just see what happens. And so there was kind of this clean slate and this white canvas that my parents just sort of allowed me to live on live in and and uh you know i was very sick for years and then i was in and out of hospitals for like four years and then um you know our family physician just told my parents they needed a morning off and so i went to the skating rink the brand new skating rink at bowling green state university and and uh it was there that i just fell in love with skating because i realized that i was really literally 
and figuratively on equal footing with all the well kids and the best athletes in my grade. But, you know, it was just one of those things that I, I just really, I just fell in love with the idea that I had like for the first time in my life, self-esteem, like I could do something as well as well kids and I could do something as well as the best athletes in my grade. And so as I improved in skating, my health improved. And so my parents were basically, okay, this, it, this works. That four years of sleeping in the corner of the room in a hospital, right? mm, this works. So we're going to continue to skate. So I became a skater and, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out, you know, how to rise above my condition of being in a small town with limited coaching and, and no real, I guess, uh, pedigree, I should say, you know, it, a lot of uh, Bowling Green was brand new and, you know, the skaters that skated there took their first steps and as they opened their doors and, and there was no culture for, you know, championship skating. So I spent the first bunch of years just skating in Bowling Green. And then, uh, a judge from Cincinnati, you know, came to my mom and just said, you know, if you're going to do this, you should probably do it all in. And so I, um, she recommended I go to Illinois and take from a coach there. And I would, I had the privilege and the honor of skating with Janet Lynn, who was um, at that time, the most popular woman athlete in the world. And I just kind of had to figure out how to train how to take in coaching, how to apply it to my day-to-day. -day. And, and then when my name was announced, how to actually compete. And, and I failed a lot, like consistently. <laughs> and what did you learn um, from that failure? Um, just that I am not afraid of it. And, you know, I got to a point where I wasn't afraid to fail, but I also got to a point where I knew there was something to mine like I knew there was, I had something in there that needed to come out. And, and so I just had to, you know, keep working it, working it, working it until I figured out a way to, on the night, show up and put down a performance that was worthy of a podium. And from there, you know, it's still kind of a little bit of up and down and a little bit, of, still a little bit of R&D that needed to be done on my skating. But once I, I figured it out, there was really no turning back. I, I, I went all in and uh, I was able to compete at a really high level for a long period of time. Was there a tipping point, Scott, where you got to, yes. where you said to yourself, gee, you know something? I have something here. I might actually be an Olympian. No, I, it wasn't so much that. Um, the, all of that was a byproduct of, of basically... Um, I, I bounced around on the lower levels, novice. I came in ninth out of nine the first year at nationals and then ninth out of 10 my second year at nationals and then figured what's the worst thing that can happen. I go up to junior level. <laughs> Why not? You know, it's like, I'm like, I own the cellar, you know, of, of men's skating at that time at Met. And I was seventh the first year and then a new coach came in and kind of cracked the whip. And so I ended up winning junior nationals kind of out of nowhere. And, um, that got me a sponsor and a coach showed some interest in me. So I moved to Denver. And after my first year on the senior level where I came in, ta-da, ninth again, it was there that I realized that my mom had sacrificed everything, everything, you know, all of her own personal comfort, anything that she could have, you know, had that she worked hard for, that she sacrificed for her children. And I was squandering it. 
And, you know, I was in her hospital room. She was suffering from cancer until about 3.30 in the morning and then went home and went to sleep on the couch because we had a lot of people visiting us to support us. And uh, my brother-in-law at the time woke me up and just said, your mother is gone. And that was the moment that everything, everything changed. I went for a walk in our backyard and I just walked for, I don't know how many hours I just walked because what, what do I do with that grief? How do I deal with the loss of, you know, kind of the woman, the person, the human, the parent I love most on the planet, you know, and it's like, how do I do this? And then it just came to me, thank you, Lord, that I could honor her in everything I did. And so I, I took her to the ice with me every day. And then oh, anytime wow. I felt like, you know, I was going to, oh, I'm going to, I'll just be a little late today. No, honor her, be on time. I'm just going to get off a little early because I'm kind of sick of doing figures. Nope. Honor her. Stay on to the last, the last possible second. Get as much as you can. I don't really feel like doing a long program run through today because they're kind of hard. And it's like, no, honor her. Do your long program run through. So I went from being sort of a guy that would do kind of the minimum to being that guy that would do the maximum. And it was all just to um, show gratitude, um, appreciation, honor my mom for everything that she sacrificed for me and to show um, her just daily how much I loved her and I wanted to become the person that she always dreamed I could be. And that kept me really super accountable. So I, I would show up at the ice every day and I wanted more, I wanted more, I wanted more. And um, the results followed, you know, from that ninth place finish the last time she saw me skate in competition to the next season, I was third in the United States and 11th in the world to two years later being on the 1980 Olympic team where I came in fifth and then fifth at Worlds. And then for the next four years, I never lost the competition. And that was like, you know, four U.S. champions, four world championships, international competitions, and then Olympic, what in the world, Olympic gold. So, you know, it was just one of those things that you know, I, I was skating for something greater than myself. And it was just the idea that I could aspire to be the skater person that my mom dreamed I could be and that everything that she sacrificed to allow that to happen. So yeah, it was, it was a real motivating factor and a real, you know, humbling thing where, you know, I never really felt worthy of any of it. It just sort of happened. And the more I invested in my success, the more success followed. And so, yeah, so I- Great lesson right there, investing in your success. Yeah. Rags to riches thing, you know? And so it it became like this guy that was perennial living in the basement to now, you know, being able to compete with anyone in the world. And it just started with that decision that, yeah, I'm going to make this happen. I'm just going to do it. I'm just, I, with no promise of anything on the other end. You know, I was the ninth place guy in the country, which is, you know, no expectation, right? So once I, I realized that I could sacrifice just general kind of lazy comfort for just something more. And then that was just honestly just to be the best that I could be and committing to the long haul. It was remarkable how the results just just came from just that one decision of honoring my mom. 
You know, you write in your book, Finish First, that the odds of you becoming an Olympic athlete were basically slim to none. <laughs> yeah, none. Yeah. Why were the odds uh, so slim? And uh, did you realize it at the time that they were that well, slim? Well, you know, I, again, I didn't come from any kind of pedigree. I didn't, my, my parents weren't, they were in academia. They, my dad was a PhD professor of biology. My mom was the second grade school teacher who went back, got her master's to be an associate professor at Bowling Green in the home economics department where she majored in mar uh, marriage and family relations. And, and she, you know, just worked. She taught school, went to school, raised the family. She had like three sets of clothes, you know, because everything went to her kids. And, and, and so, you know, it was like, there was any, any of that that said, oh, by the way, your son's going to go to the Olympics and, and win a gold medal. No, no. I mean, it was, Bowling Green built a skating rink so they could have a hockey team and classes for their students. So it was the one facility at the university that was used as much by the, the city as it was by the students. And I was, you know, a true beneficiary of just sort of build it and they will come, right? You know, that yep. old field of dreams thing. And, and also, you know, just the idea that there was no set expectation, which is kind of a two-edged sword. It can really hurt you or it can really help you. And then, you know, the fact that I was given the opportunity to train with some of the best skaters in the world, and they set an example for me. But honestly, you know, with my childhood illness, my size, my health, none of that really is a recipe for Olympic success. <laughs> you know, it just isn't. Not usually. It, yeah. it just came out of that I guess, sheer will of, of really just trying to be the best that I could be and to see, you know, what came of that. How many hours a day did you actually train for the Olympics? And when you had those moments where you wanted to quit, was there anything else besides your mom that kind of kept you moving forward? In the beginning, it was all mom. And I, I would go about four hours a day of just the compulsory figures, you know, just tracing circles and trying to master the turns and the cleanliness of the edge and all that and that was kind of tedious and boring and I didn't really like them very much and honestly they didn't like me either you know it was kind of one of those things where if you dread doing something the results follow I like to free skate and I love the excitement of jumping and spinning and performing and and just the athleticism of all that was really satisfying to me but I didn't like the the tedious nature of just doing the compulsory figures and then it got to a point where something, you know, it just sort of, I realized after the 80 Olympics that, because I was eighth in the figures and in Lake Placid and at the world championships, and I was able to pull up to fifth, that if I wanted to win, I had to get, it's kind of what I, you know, my kids all the time, I do this and they always roll their eyes. It's like, what's the greatest strength? And they go, Ugh, lack of weakness. And I go, right, figure out where you're weak and get strong. And I realized that I wasn't very competent at compulsory figures because I, I, I did them half-hearted. And so I decided that if I wanted to win and I was, you know, I was fifth in the world and then the gold medalist, Robin Cousins turned pro, the silver medalist, uh, Jan Hoffman went to medical school and the bronze medalist, Charlie Tickner turned pro. Basically all I had to do was wake up one morning and I'm ranked second in the world. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a great cup of coffee, right? So <laughs> how do I win? Well, the guy that I had to beat was a wizard at compulsory figures. And so it was like, okay, there's the carrot. And so I started investing in that thing that I hated to do the most. 
and all of a sudden I realized that it was really, it was a really healthy, fun, honest challenge. And I fell in love with compulsory figures to the point that if you go back to Sarajevo, it was the main reason I won the gold medal was because I won the compulsory figures and I beat some amazingly talented guys at compulsory figures, especially Jean-Christophe Simon from France, who was the best probably ever. And I beat him five judges to four on the first figure, seven judges to two on the second figure. And then on the third figure, I beat him nine judges to zero. And wow. so it was like, you know, I had to prove it to the judges that I was worthy of that. And I did. And then I had a huge lead going into the free skating portions. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a Canadian skater named Brian Orser, who was half of the Battle of the Bryans in 1988, who absolutely ran a clinic in the long program and destroyed me in the long program. But I was still able to come in second and in the long and I had to be fifth and long in order to lose. And the odds of that happening were slim, <laughs> you know? And, and so I put myself in a position to win and, and I, I was able to do that. And, and then a month later, I, I was able to go to Canada, Brian Orser's home country, and I was able to beat him there at the world championships to kind of like stamp, all right, I'm the right guy. I did my four-year period between Olympics and I did it as well as I possibly could. And now I am flat broke living in my best friend's parents' basement. Now it's time for me to get a job and build a, a life and career. So I knew that was next. So did you enjoy, uh, Scott, the competition and winning the gold medal at the very time you were doing it? Or did you appreciate competing and winning more in retrospect? You know, it, to me, a lot of it was I didn't like competing. It was extremely stressful. And I just, it was always kind of, there was always that anticipation of failure because I'd done it so many times, right? So I, I would always tell people that the process of competing wasn't the enjoyment of, you know, kind of that whole lead up to the night. It was the performance itself was something I really loved. It was a blast to be in front of an audience and, and just skate, but I love winning. <laughs> you know, I got to the point where that 10 minutes after you win is the most euphoric and the most satisfying thing you can possibly imagine. And then that dissipates and that's like, okay, back to work, you know, time for the, get ready for the next one. And, and I love that 10 minutes after I won. And, and it was sort of what kind of, allowed me to, you know, kind of keep going. The first time I won the world championships, you know, I'm standing on the podium and I'm saying, man, either the sports at its lowest place in history, if I'm as champion or I've really got up my game. And so I drove myself crazy. I just really struggled that year and my coach managed it perfectly. So the next year when I got through the season and I, I you know, remained undefeated that year, I'm standing on the podium winning my second world championship. And I'm looking around going, I'm not competing against every sentient being on the planet earth, nor am I competing against the history of the sport. I'm competing with guys just like me, guys. They're just guys. And they put their skates on one skate at a time and they're trying to do their best here. And if I can stay ahead of these guys for two more years, there's a pretty good chance I could win an Olympic gold medal. And, you know, I was like, wow, wow. 
wow. And, and so then it becomes this kind of laser focus of keep your eye a little bit, don't look over your shoulder, but keep, keep your eye on the field and make sure that you're able to strategically stay ahead of the, the guys that you want to be. What happens when doubts crept in and did say to yourself, well, maybe I am not worthy. Maybe these guys are better than me. Why, you know, am I even trying? Uh, have you, when you had, did you have those moments, how did you kind of bust through you that? Know, you know, I think you always have moments, right, where you wonder if you're worthy of it or what it's going to take and who's going to rise up. And then, you know, just sort of that, it's like, okay, what do I need to do? get strong where I'm weak. Get back to work. And get back to work. And nothing replaces work. You can have all the natural talent in the world. You know, when I when I I would go out to LA to get the choreography when I was a professional skater and my choreographer was an amazing talented woman named Sarah Kawahara and she was just genius and brilliant and the things that we were able to create were really fun and really enjoyable for the audience and and the rink where we would skate sometimes I would go and Wayne Gretzky would be there, the greatest hockey the player great ever. Gretzky. The The great one, right? And he'd be on the ice and he'd have the ice to himself and he'd be working with, you know, uh, a, a endurance and agility and speed, you know, kind of the coach. And then he'd be working on his stick handling. And, and I, I saw that and I was like, this guy is the greatest skater, greatest hockey player in the history of the sport. And he's working harder than everyone. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And he also you know, said, like you, you yeah, he said, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. Right? right. And, you know, so he, he was that guy that, yeah, maybe he had all the natural ability in the world, but that wasn't going to see him to the finish line. That yep. wasn't going to get him a cup. He had to work mm -hmm. hard at using whatever gifts he was given and leveraging those gifts into something even beyond spectacular and so, you know, you learn from people around you. It's like, you know, Michael Jordan was kind of crushing it, you know, and I would look and I, I would watch him and I'd say, wow, you know, it's like he's working really hard. And all the people that I saw that were super successful were working really hard. And, you know, post-Olympics, there was no real place for a male figure skater. You know, Ice Capade signed me because that four-year run I had um, hadn't been done since 1960. And well, the four-year run hadn't been done since 1956, right? Because I won four world titles and a guy who won gold in 60 won three world titles and he didn't compete at the Worlds in 60, but uh, he would have won because <laughs> he was that great. But so they signed me and I told them I was going to be your model employee, best they've ever had. I was going to show up every day. I was going to skate hard. I was going to, you know, just promote, promote, promote. And uh, they're like, yeah, well, sure, whatever. And, you know, I realized at that time that if I needed a role model, there really wasn't one in skating. You know, there was Gordy McKellen, who was a national champion uh, in 73, 74, and 75. And I skated with him in Illinois at the training ground with Janet Lynn. And, and I watched him and just how he was as a skater and as um, an athlete. And he was a great role model. But I knew if I wanted to build a professional career, there was really nobody there that I could, you know, kind of say, well, I'm going to step into those shoes because the shoes didn't really exist the way I wanted them to. And so Sarah and I would just create these outrageous programs. But my role models at the time were Neil Diamond because he showed joy 
every single time he was on stage in front of an audience. And that's why he was able to tour for 50 Sweet years. Sweet Caroline. Bump, bump, bump. And then <laughs> the other role model was Bruce Springsteen, who just worked harder than anyone else. I mean, those four hour shows are legendary. And he just, you know, built an audience. He just said, you know, I don't have an audience now, you know, but I'm going to build one. And to this day, he can tour the world and sell out stadiums, you know. And then my third role model was a guy named uh, Robert Plant, who was the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, of who went solo. And in his solo career, he was adventurous and took chances and would take on different identities and rhythms and styles. And it was like, I need to do that because, you know, you can show joy and you can work really hard, but how do you create longevity? And that's by being bold and adventurous and introducing things fresh every year that allow you to kind of stay evergreen to an audience where you're not just resting on your past success as you're pushing the envelope every year to skate a little bit faster, a little bit more intricate, a little bit more entertaining. And, and you leverage what you did the year before in order to really take you to the next place the year after. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Busting that status quo. I love that story. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the great quotes that you have in your book is that making the choice to finish first will change the trajectory and quality of your life and will change everything. Can you tell us mm -hmm. more about that? Well, it does change everything. It changes the air in the room. It changes you know, you're the same guy, like, you know, Joe Walsh said, everybody's so different. I haven't changed. Right. You know, and, that, and that's true mm -hmm. is when you start to win, when you start to be more successful, when you start to, you know, hit that top of the podium, or when you start to skate at a level that draws more people to what you're doing, it creates more opportunity. It creates the next possibility. It creates all kinds of incredible people look at you differently. People, you know, they want to be a part of what you're doing. They really want to give you the next opportunity and it just grows on itself. And out of the Olympics, I had this attitude that I wanted to be an appreciating asset. I didn't want to be a depreciating asset, meaning that I didn't want my Olympics to be the end all be all of how people looked at me and what they, you know, whatever they thought of my skating. I wanted to take that and leverage it and be able to get to the next level. Which is harder to do with a bronze medal, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you can do a lot of things with a bronze medal. Look at Tyler Cranston. He skated for decades, you know, and was loved and beloved by his native Canada and around the world. But, you know, you, you've got to, you know, with a gold medal, it probably opens a few more doors. And, yep. and it's like NFL draft. If you're picked first, you're probably going to make a little bit more out of the gate than the guy who was picked third or fourth or fifth or whoever else was in the first round. That's a huge accomplishment yep. to be picked in the first round, but to be the number one pick, that's a, a, a nod and that's a credibility that you can really leverage into a greater career. How do you juggle it all? You've got all these kids, you've got these foundations, you've got the Scott Hamilton CARES Foundation, which is an acronym for Cancer Alliance for Research, Education, and Survivorship. You've got uh, written the three books. Uh, how do you do it, Scott? I know, it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. You know, I've got Skating Academy. Uh, you know, we teach kids their you know, first steps on the ice, and we have the ability now with our coaching staff to take them all the way to the Olympics if they have the ability to do that. And 
Um, that's fun. I do that as a volunteer for the Nashville Predators. And then the CARES Foundation I do as a volunteer because uh, I lost my mother to cancer. I honor her and I survived cancer. So I want to, you know, I want to be a part of the solution to cancer. How do we make the next journey better, easier than the last one? And we do that through funding the right research, which is, you know, to immunotherapy to teach our own body's immune system how to fight the cancer and recognize it and destroy it and and in a way that's more natural and not so poisonous is I'm here because of chemotherapy. I'm not a hypocrite, but I can't wait to get rid of it. Um, all that's volunteer. And then, you know, when I, when I have to keep the lights on, I do a lot of speaking and I do some television for figure skating and, you know, I'm just sort of making it up as I go along, but you know, it's these experiences that I've been really blessed Thank you, Lord. Um, I've been blessed to experience our, and you know, there's there's stuff there to mine. When I wrote Finish First, it was like, how does somebody like me win? And it's like, if I can do it, then just about anybody can, you know? And it just, it's it's all those 11 principles that I introduced throughout the book. This is the, the formula for winning. And when you win, it changes everything everything. <laughs> it really does. It changes the next opportunity and what that looks like. It, and that opportunity changes the next one. Because if you build this, this sort of mentality for winning, whatever that experience or whatever that job or whatever that is, you, you can leverage that to never before anticipated. So, you know, it's, it's just that it's like winning changes everything. And and if you can create a winning mindset, if you can create a winning image, you know, you build a trust, right? And people get behind that. And they, you know, in many respects, they, they just want to be a part of it. And, and it's like that. How do you fix skating? Skating has been in kind of like a recession for the last, I guess, uh, 15 years or so, 20 maybe. How do we rise above that? And it's, win baby win and that's what nathan chen's doing and he's bringing a lot of attention to the sport and when he goes to the olympics next year easily he'll be the favorite to win because he's dominated everyone and people are going to be really excited not only about watching him achieve that goal but also about really being in the same room with him afterwards so you know again you can leverage those moments and those hurdles accomplished, those uh, medals won, those, you know, and, and, and really turn them into the next opportunity. Now you have another great quote in your book. You know, you say that some of us are born with more resources than others, more access, more opportunities. You know, some may argue that a Michael Jordan or, or Wayne Gretzky, maybe they have more resources, maybe they didn't. But the real thing that kind of separates even those like a Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky, despite the opportunities, is, is one qualification that makes someone more likely to win. You say they choose to win. Yeah. Now, wow, that's a powerful statement. Can we uh, mm -hmm. amplify on that a little bit? You know, it's kind of like first brain tumor. Our mantra was, it is what it is, whatever it takes. And, you know, when you can get into that whatever it takes kind of attitude, whatever it takes, right? So if, if you get into that whatever it takes, then um, you're you're participating more in, in what will be the outcome of whatever your pursuit is. And, you know, you choose to win. You say, okay, I'm, I, I'm choosing to be better than I've ever been before. I, I'm choosing to be more committed than I've ever been before. I'm, I'm making the conscious choice of recognizing my abilities and my deficiencies 
and addressing them both in order to, to be as successful as I can be. And, and, you know, how far can I take this? And, you know, when I speak on Finish First, there's a great example of, I show a slide of a storage unit, you know, one of those orange doored storage mm-hmm. units, right? And, you know, Nashville, where I live, is the most competitive music market, arguably, in the world, right? If you want to make it in Nashville, you better bring it, right? So there's this guy who works a nine-to-five job, Monday through Friday, and every day after work, he'll grab a bite to eat, and then he'll bang on his drums in this storage area, in this storage area where he keeps his drums for four hours. And then on the weekends, you know, he plays all day. And, And it's like, you want to pull him away on a weeknight to, to go to a movie or dinner. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm all in. I'm committed. I'm, I'm drumming that time. I've, I've slotted those hours and nothing, no one, are, they're not going to interfere. That's being so myopic and being so committed that, you know, I, I have no doubt that that guy is doing every single thing it takes in order to be competitive in the most competitive music market no excuses, in North America. Right? No, you just show up. You just yep. show up and you do the work and you repeat those steps over and over and over to where they become second nature. You know, when anybody starts skating at the skating academy and they're like, you know, wobbling and they're doing all these things and they have rental skates, which are the bane of my existence. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're on bad equipment. They've never skated before. And they, uh, you know, they, they, they go, I'm, I, I just don't think I can do this. And it's like, do you remember learning how to walk? And they go, no. I go, but do you think about it now? And they go, no. I go, that'll be your skating. You just got to show up. Yeah, just start. Yeah. Over and Good over lesson. and yeah. over. If you repeat something enough, it becomes second nature. So Scott, you're a role model literally to tens of millions of people who have challenges. You're a role model to me watching you um, thrive despite your challenges. How have you been able to not only cope as a cancer and a brain tumor survivor, but to actually thrive and be happy despite it all and be the (laughs) eternal optimist you are known to be? You know, when I I was writing Finish First, you know, it just came down to how many times do you think you've fallen? And I I did the quick math. And I figured I'd fallen down probably about 41,600 times minimum. Wow. Well, I've gotten up 41,600 mm-hmm. times. Yeah. The more you're able to get up, the more you're used to getting up. And, and that's why, you know, when COVID shut everything down, it was like, you know, we introduced live your days. You know, we just, how can I encourage people? Well, you know, I can remind them that our bodies are, are, are very fragile, also phenomenally resilient, but ultimately temporary. Today's one of your days. How are you going to live it? And it's a real call to action, you know, because what we say throughout um, the Live Your Days platform is we don't get to choose how many days we live on this earth. We only get to choose how we live them. And mm-hmm. so it's a real call to action. It's like standing up in the face of a pandemic and saying, no, I choose joy. I choose abundance. I choose I choose it all. I just choose the good. And so, you know, if people go on liveyourdays.com, they can find a 30-day challenge, which is really fun. And it's um, simple tasks that are meant to build those muscles of just gratitude and joy under any circumstance. And I think I was only able to do that because, you know, when I had cancer, it was a real wake-up call because I lost my mother to cancer 20 years before. 
And then when I got through that, it was like, wow, that was really hard, but it was, you know, here I am. And then brain tumor number one, it is what it is, whatever it takes. Brain tumor number two was like getting kicked in the gut. Um, I had surgery, brain surgery, one turned into nine, and then um, came back from that. And then when the next brain tumor was diagnosed, um, they're giving me the treatment options. And all I kept hearing in the back of my mind was get strong. And I didn't know what that meant, get strong. It's like, they're telling me about surgery. They're telling me about medical options. And all I keep hearing is get strong. And, and I realized in that moment that it wasn't about getting strong physically or emotionally or intellectually or spiritually. It was all the above. In order for me to like stand up in this moment, I had to be committed to be stronger than I've ever been in every capacity and every aspect of my life. And it was the healthiest thing I've ever done. It was like, all right, yeah, I got a brain tumor. How do you want to treat it? I don't. I'm going to put my faith in the Lord and I'm going to show up every day. I'm going to get stronger than I've ever been and um, in every way I possibly can. And let's see where this thing goes. And so for the last four years, it grows, it shrinks, it shrinks, it grows, it shrinks, it grows. And so I haven't had to pull the trigger on any kind of uh, treatment. You know, there's no surgery, no chemo, no any of that. And, and whether when I do, I will. But for the time being, I'm just getting as strong as I possibly can. So for Scott, for those people who are suffering and say, woe with me, would you say pull out your faith as the number one battle against no, I'd this say, challenge? No, I'd say, you know, what, where are you weak right now? Get strong. Mm. You know, are you weak emotionally? Get strong. Surround yourself with people that are going to lift you up. Are you weak because you don't understand your condition? Well, get smart. Do all the research you possibly can. Am I weak because of my condition? Well, physically, you can do things to, you know, clean up your diet, do your research, take the right supplements, and and build your body up. Move. Your body wants to move. Let it move. And ultimately, though, you know, knowing that our physical being is temporary, but our what's the driving force of all of it is our eternal soul. What are we doing to shore that up? You know, and I don't want to give a sermon right now, but I will because that's what we're called to do. And that is, you know, get right with the Lord and just learn who he is, what he's about and, you know, what he expects from us. There's a lot of really great preaching out there and there's some really bad ones as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really amazing, strong, generous Christians that can really help you along your path and allowing you to understand who Jesus is and what he's about. And there's a lot of really bad ones too. So, you know, you've got to, you just got to invest. You got to invest the time it takes to shore yourself up in every capacity. And then once you do that, life takes on a different identity and challenge takes on a different identity. And we respect our days better than, and, you know, more than we ever have. And, and that's it. You know, how are we going to make today great? What, a great what are we going to do yeah. to make today really worth living? And, and, you know, I, I know I have met so many people that just, can't help but suck lemons, you know, <laughs> you know, like that all the time. Like, yeah, and no, I'm, I'm trying no, to, I'm no, trying to get them to change on my show. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you're doing a great service by introducing them to concepts and thoughts and mindsets, and 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 it's and it's it's healthy. This is healthy stuff, and you know, but it it all starts with a choice that you want to live better than you lived before. You want to be happier than you've been before. You want to be more alive than you've ever been. It starts with that 
choice, choice. That, I love to that. move forward. Love it. And it, it is a choice. You know, I've, I've seen too many people like Kyle Maynard. Have you ever interviewed Kyle Maynard? Not yet. You should. I will. Kyle Maynard climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. A lot of people have, you know, a lot of people have done that. How many people have done it without arms or legs? Mm, not many. He got to the top with a soldier's ashes Remarkable. and uh, poured them out. How, you know, it's like, how many people do you know have been burned over 85% of their body and were, um, as a baby, 27 surgeries or more? just skin grafts and everything else, don't have ears, don't have fingers, learned how to hammer nails at a mission trip and became junior class president because they were easily the most popular kid in their grade. How do you rise above that to be that? And it, it all starts with a decision to not allow your circumstances to control your quality of life and, and what you, how you want to live. And so well, I've been inspired by so many people that are just remarkable in a way that it's like, well, if they can do that, like, so can I, you know, so can I, you know, I had to, I'm going to tell you a quick story. I, I was on a shuttle bus at Los Angeles airport one time. And as a kid growing up, like Art Linkletter was all that, like mm -hmm. he, he had, you know, kids say the darndest things and he was really popular as on talk show. And I'd watch it all the time. I just, I just thought he was the coolest thing ever. And he was on the shuttle bus with me. And I was, this is, you know, I'm a, a professional skater and I'm doing all these things. And so I summoned up the courage to meet him. And I went up and I said, uh, Mr. Linkletter, um, I, I just want, I'm a big fan of yours. I just wanted to say hello. And he goes, Scott, <laughs> I was just like, my knees went like that. And I go, yes, he goes, I know who you are. And, I'm, and I, I was just, I must've gone just flush red. And I was like, oh, I'm, I, I didn't know what to say. And he goes, oh, you've endured so much. You know, you childhood illness, am I right? And I go, yes, sir. And he goes, and uh, you survived cancer. And I go, yes, sir. And he said, and, and you grew bald publicly. And I went, I didn't know that was um, a disability, but I go, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, I look at this perfect head of hair. And I'm like, okay. So it's perspective, right? Yeah. It's like, that would be for him. It would be like, oh, that, that I couldn't live with that. And it's like, Really? You know, because I'm really grateful that I can get out of the shower and I can do this and I'm done. I'm ready to go. You know, I don't have to worry about product or hair drying or anything else or styling. My haircut takes less than five minutes. And so it's like there's so many great things about growing bald publicly and yep. that's OK. So I think a lot of our condition can be thrust upon us or it can be just sort of something that we a lie we believe. But, you know, knowing that we have a living, loving God that just loves us and adores us more than anything else, it's a pretty strong starting place. That's a good thing to rely on right there. Absolutely. So, Scott, tell me about Fritzy Finds a Hat, your book. Tell us about that. So it, it started um, with my mom, the way she told us that she had cancer. She came home from a doctor's visit and she um, she goes, hey, everybody, family meeting. And I was like, What's a family meeting? And so we sat down around the table and she goes, okay, everybody, I just came from the doctor and I have a disease called cancer. And, you know, it's just, I'm going to you know, take some medicine. I mean, I feel good and I might have yeah. surgery or whatever, but anyway, I'm going to need some help around the house. And I thought cancer was a really bad thing. And um, I watched her go through it and uh, she was remarkable. She would say things like, oh, this chemotherapy, I finally found a way to lose all this weight. 
And oh, this chemo is awesome. My hair has always been such a problem. These wigs are so beautiful and so much easier. And she goes, oh, this chemo is phenomenal. I've wanted to quit smoking all these years. Now I have no desire. It's like she flipped the script and it was like, yeah. So basically the idea of Fritzy finds a hat is that Fritzy's mom comes home with the news that she has cancer. And every Tuesday she goes in for a treatment and Fritzy takes it on himself to say, I'm going to find her the perfect hat for her treatment days. Something that, I, you know, and so we pulled the, everybody together. It was Brad Paisley did a lot of the illustrations and uh, Mary Coffeen, you know, did, I, I mean, it's a, it was a really great group effort to pull Fritzy together, but it was all based on the courage and the attitude of my mom and, and how children can really participate in their parents' challenges and, and be problem solving. Wow. Love it. Scott, thank you so much for sharing all these great motivations, inspirations, helping to uplift people. How would you like to leave our audience today? Any other further thoughts? Oh, man, we've just got through or getting through or are still going through one of the most difficult things we've ever, ever experienced, you know, just the loss of life, you know, people getting sick, you know, just all the decisions that come with uh, vaccines and all these other loss of work and and you know it just it's been a devastating time in in our history and I just really want to encourage people just to to know that this too shall pass to hang in there in every way you possibly can and to just you know try to inject a mountain of joy into your lives you know my wife said it best in an interview. Because no matter when I have a, a scan, I say, no matter what the, whatever the result is, I'm going to face it joyfully. And they're like, really? And she said, you know, joy isn't the lack of fear and suffering. It's how you go through it. Mm-hmm. And I, I really want people to understand that no matter what's going on in our world and our life and everything else, we still can choose to enjoy this moment, this day, and, and just fight for that and, and really, you know, choose to be stronger than you've ever been and um, to be more aware that it all starts with the fact that you're loved unconditionally and forever. You know, that's what somebody told me the definition of the gospel was. They said, you are loved, deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) So So. it's about choosing today to make your day or somebody else's better. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the secret sauce is uh, just, it starts with a choice. So beautifully and, said. Um, and everything comes from that choice. So tell us again how people can stay in touch with Scott Hamilton and your foundation and all your work. Well, um, everything you can go through scotthamilton.com, scottcares.org, liveyourdays.com. They, they, I think you can navigate to everything from the scotthamilton.com webpage, but we're doing a lot of fun things and uh, we're serving the community in fun ways. And everyone's invited to the party. So um, come join us and let's, uh, and on the cancer side, let's change the world for the better. And if you want to learn how to skate, we know how to do that. And uh, I'm here to serve and I'm here to do whatever I can to take the gifts I've been given and share them in the best ways possible. And I'd like to encourage my audience to go out and get yourself a few dozen copies of Finish First, <laughs> which I can't put down. Great lessons oh, of life on you. how winning changes everything, and it really does. And go out and get Fritzy Finds a Hat, you know, because these things support Scott's foundations and they're good things. Thank you so much for being part of our show today, Scott. Thank you.
Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.